You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty God, you have given us all things necessary for salvation. We thank you this morning for the gift of Holy Scripture. We ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to it, to conform our lives with it, to understand and to know and to do your will for us. All of these things we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So again, welcome. I call this little short series, five weeks or maybe four if we need to telescope it, I call it Ecclesiastes for every man and every woman. And I don't mean to imply by that that Ecclesiastes by Mark Genolette is not for the average Adventer in the pew because I've heard it and some of you have heard it and it certainly is not over the heads of the average person. I instead intend to imply that for this average parishioner in the pew, Ecclesiastes has a certain, a certain immediacy, a certain, um, honest relevance that I can relate to my own life. And as I said before we had the prayer and opened, you can be sure that any analysis of Ecclesiastes coming from up here, yours truly, is going to be right down at ground level. So um, you probably could bring your your 10-year-olds in here and they would, you know, I don't know if they get anything out of it, but we could try. So why Ecclesiastes? Well, rather than me jabber on about it. I just prefer to let the text speak for itself. Those of you who have your Bibles, that's great. If you don't, it's no problem. I'm reading from the first chapter beginning at the second verse. And let's listen to the words of the preacher. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls around continually and comes again on its circuit. Skipping down. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. (laughs) Well now... If you knew nothing about Ecclesiastes, never heard of it, no clue about it, and you picked up this passage written on a piece of notebook paper and read it out loud, you might reasonably assume that it was written by one of those left bank intellectuals who'd sit around sipping perno all day and jabber on about existential despair. And even... Those of us who know what Ecclesiastes is and know that it's in the Bible, some of us tend to kind of hold it at arm's length. I've read that Martin Luther 
believe that Ecclesiastes didn't even belong in the Bible. So, if you have your doubts, you certainly are not alone. And yet, respectfully, I dissent. I first picked up Ecclesiastes about ten years ago during Lent, thinking that it would be the perfect thing to read during that time of the year that we're all contemplating returning to dust And I have to tell you, it knocked me right to the floor. I found in Ecclesiastes the most honest, unvarnished, unsentimental look at the human condition that I'd ever seen. And it 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 really, like the parable of the of the prodigal son when the fellow woke up in a pigsty and suddenly realized how completely worthless his life was and how completely he had blown it ecclesiastes sort of sort of made me think that way but the more i read it and i've read it a few times since then the more i saw in it not just existential despair but also a sort of a hope a sort of a pointing towards something that is better and not only that Ecclesiastes is offered us through the King James Version anyway, some really beautiful words and phrases that have worked their way into our modern lexicon. I just read one for you in verse 5. The sun also rises. How many people think that maybe when Ernest Hemingway was writing his novel about these rootless intellectuals who were wandering around getting drunk every night between Paris and Pamplona, if he might have had Ecclesiastes in his mind. I don't know. I can never prove it. To my knowledge, he never said one way or the other, but I think that it, it could hardly be coincidental that he used that, that phrase. Think also about um, what Ecclesiastes might mean beyond simple despair. Look again at the passage that we just read. It starts and ends with human futility. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? And then at the end, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who come after That's the perfect definition of human futility. And yet in the middle of it, listen again to what the writer, the preacher says about the created world. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. Here's a verse that we didn't read, but it's worth thinking about now. Verse 7, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full to the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. This endless, perfect cycle implies that God's created world is ordered and is orderly and has a logic and an internal cycle that makes it work perfectly. And yet the contrast is this human flailing around for meaning this human desire for something that's transcendent and we can't find it. So maybe the preacher is contrasting our unhappiness with God's plan for what we should be. 
And in that, it's not just existential despair. We're supposed to follow the preacher and try to find it. Let's look at another passage. I'm going to pick up where I left off in verse 12 of chapter 1, going to verse 15. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to find and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task that God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be numbered. This also sounds like despair, but think about what this guy is saying. He says, I'm going to set out a, 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 a sort of an inquiry into the meaning of life. So who is this guy anyway, this preacher? Well, it implies that he's Solomon. He describes himself as the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. And traditionally, I think a lot of, a lot of scholars attributed this book to Solomon. But it's not clear. A lot of other scholars think this book was written years later after Solomon, in the late kingdom years, during the... The, the height of what was called the wisdom school. That's why it's in the wisdom books. Whether it was actually written by Solomon or it was written by somebody else and attributed to Solomon, the point about Solomon, I think, is that we're about to get a survey in the meaning of life from the most accomplished person who ever lived. The wisest king of Israel, the most, you know, the height of the Israelite nation was under the kingship of Solomon, the guy who had accomplished the most in his life, the least limited of almost any human being. And so we we are to understand that whatever we conclude at the end of this uh, at the end of this book, guided by the wisdom of Solomon, whatever we conclude is going to have a lot of intellectual heft to it, because after all, it's coming from Solomon. Um, I kind of liken him to Socrates. Cain probably remembers, and any other lawyers in the room probably remember in law school, learning from the Socratic method. The professor would ask question after question, and every question was eliciting an answer, and every answer prompted another question. And that's what the preacher is going to do. A couple of definitions. The word preacher, the title preacher in the text, is the English translation of a Hebrew word, Kohelet, which is transliterated in most of the versions I've seen, Q-O-H-E-L-E-T-H. It's not important how you spell it. Kohelet, though, is the is a, roughly translates as one who addresses a congregation or a gathering. The name of the book in Hebrew is Kohelet. We get the word Ecclesiastes, the title Ecclesiastes, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures that were popular during the time of Christ. In the first century in in the Roman Empire, most Jews who lived in Judea and Samaria 
could speak Greek, they weren't very good with Hebrew, so they would read there and listen to their scriptures in Greek. And that's where we get Ecclesiastes. It means about the same thing. One who addresses an assembly. The root word, Ecclesia, this is interesting, is the word that the ancient uh, Athenians used for their democratic assembly there in Athens, the Ecclesia. It was also the word that the early Christians gave to the church. The Ecclesia was the assembly, which was the early church. It's also that word is the root for a lot of Romance words for church, like Eglise in French and Iglesia in Spanish. And I'll bet Margie can tell us what the Portuguese is, not to put her on the spot or anything. So, okay. So it's almost the same as the Spanish. Um, I didn't set that up. I, I just I just knew Margie could do that. Um, so this is um, this is where we get the, the the title Ecclesiastes because it is the preacher, the one who is addressing the assembly. So like Socrates, he's going to take us by logic through this survey of the meaning of life and listen to again the way he describes what life is. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. Another word for exercise in this translation is afflicted. The way that we have to suffer through life. That's a kind of a gloomy way to look at life. But it may be that the preacher is sort of channeling Genesis where God pronounces his sentence on Adam and Eve and all of humanity the natural consequences of their rebellion. And look also, he says that the works that are done under the sun are all vanity. He says what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be numbered. Which is to say what God has made a certain way, man can't make any other way. What God has made innumerable, man cannot count. Can we count the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the earth? We can't. It's, it's, it's beyond our capacity. And I think that's sort of, the, sort of the bar that the preacher is setting up here. We're going to try to understand it as best we can understand it, realizing that our ability to understand it is strictly limited. One little clue here in the context, twice in verse 13... And in verse 14, he refers to works that are done under heaven and works that are done under the sun. This is a recurring metaphor. I quit counting at 30. I think 30 is about right. There are about 30 times in Ecclesiastes where he uses the metaphor either under the sun or under heaven. And I believe that what he's trying to get at is he's saying that the things that are done down here on earth, under the sun, under heaven, not in heaven, he's making a distinction between what we do in our human lives and what God intends for us to do in his perfect plan. Again, the same dichotomy that he kind of set up in that first passage we read, the human flailing around as opposed to the perfect order in the created world. So the question that we should have early on in this book is whether this is a commentary on the futility of trying to find fulfillment in life 
outside of the context of God and God's will. One more, um, one more definition, and probably those of you who've been in Mark Genelette's class have been waiting for this. Vanity. Uh, another one of those words that from the King James Version translation has come down to us. Um, if you've ever read the the very dark novel, Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men, or seen the movie, there was a fantastic scene that's sort of key to understanding the plot that is spun around the term vanity and its use in the in the context of that of that plot. And I've no doubt that Cormac McCarthy smoking his dope or eating his peyote mushrooms or whatever it was that leads him to his crazy stories was thinking about Ecclesiastes. The word vanity in Hebrew is hevel. Hevel is a very rich word with overlapping meanings, the most obvious of which in the context of Ecclesiastes, the most obvious of which is uh, futility. But it has another meaning. It means smoke. And Mark Genelette compared it to the vagus puff of smoke from drawing on a cigar. You draw on a cigar, you puff it into the air, and there's a little bit of smoke that hangs in the air, and then it's gone. If you think about vanity that way, it's, it's actually kind of a, a pretty good metaphor for the futility of human life outside of God. It's just, it's, it's smoke. And he's going to come back to this term over and over and over, this futility of living in this duality, our human striving and God's purpose. Unless we think that this is something that is strictly Old Testament, I invite you to consider the words of St. Paul in his epistle to the Romans. I'm reading from... Romans chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, and then I'll skip down to 22 and 23. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. I think Paul is touching on the same thing that the preacher is touching on. This this duality of man. We are spiritual beings. We are meant to conform ourselves to God's will, and yet we don't. And yet we can't. This is a very... Christian gospel message. So there's nothing foreign or strange about this showing up in Ecclesiastes. It's true that nowhere in Ecclesiastes are we going to get a glimpse of the Savior, which is perhaps the reason that a lot of believers hold it at arm's length. But nevertheless, I think that what the preacher is doing for us is sort of defining the problem so that once we understand the problem, we can come to an understanding of what the solution is. So let's look at another passage. Ecclesiastes 2, and beginning at the first verse. The 
preacher is going to consider two sides of discernment. First, he's going to talk about, he's going to consider pleasure. And then in a subsequent passage, he's going to consider wisdom. Listen to what he writes about pleasure. I'll start at the first verse and then I'll skip down a little bit. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine, while guiding my heart with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which water the growing trees of the grove. Skipping down to verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Have you ever experienced that? You work hard. You get a certain level of achievement. You perhaps build up a certain surplus in your bank account. You say, I want to enjoy it. I want to... I, I, I want to sit back and rest and relax, but it's the nature, I think, of all enjoyment, of all pleasure, in very brilliant observation by one of the commentators I read, to grow stale. Uh, there's nothing more pathetic in my book than those um, indolent rich people, not going to point any fingers to anybody in popular culture, but who do nothing all day except pursue the latest, newest, pleasure, the, the the newest cool thing. And they have no aim in their lives. They have no purpose in their lives. And I think that's what the preacher is getting at here. I, you know, I, I achieved all of these things and I built these monuments to my achievement and I enjoyed them. And yet it all turns stale. It's the nature of pleasure to need ever more and more and more. More wine to feel the same kind of a buzz that the first sip of wine used to give, more uh, thrills, more adrenaline to get the same rush that the first one ever started. So he turns to realize that this pursuit of pleasure is vanity. So he's going to turn and consider wisdom. Picking up at verse 12. Then I turn myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who succeeds the king, only what he has already done? Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise man than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? 
as the fool. So being wise certainly beats being stupid, but in the end, we all go down to dust. And at the end, after we're gone, the wise man has no greater legacy in the generations to follow than the foolish man has. And to put it another way, at the end of chapter 1, the preacher writes, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Or as one of my favorite political commentators has written, anything is easy if you don't know anything about it. And as the preacher is saying here, the more I learn about something, the more I realize I don't know anything. And the more I realize I don't know anything, the more I question what's the point of learning in the first place. What is the point of being wise if in the end you wind up as worm food the same as the one who's foolish and who fritters away his life. Well, that's a very gloomy way to look at it. But I think once again that what the preacher is doing is he's setting us up for disappointment before he gives us the hope. He's giving us that wake up in the pigsty moment that the prodigal son had before we are open to the message of something better than simply wasting our lives in this vanity. So look at one other passage, and then we will draw a conclusion, I hope. I'm picking up at verse 17 in the second chapter, and I'll read to verse 20. Therefore I hated life, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, if he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled, in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore I turned my heart and despaired for all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. He's come to the point with realizing that the two sides of discernment, pleasure and wisdom, don't ultimately lead to fulfillment. Interesting parallel. In the 17th chapter of the book of Acts, St. Paul goes to Athens and he's invited up onto the Areopagus, Mars Hill, in the English translation of that, that site in Athens, which you can still see, I'm told. He goes up to Mars Hill to address a gathering of the Stoics and the Epicureans, which were two schools of, of philosophical thought in first century Athens. The Stoics and the Epicureans actually started from the same premise that life was perfectly pointless. The Stoic answer to pointlessness of life was to bear it up with dignity and, and grace. That's where we get Stoicism. The Epicurean response to the meaningless of, of life, which you can guess from the title Epicureans, was to simply enjoy it. And I would say that this is exactly what the preacher has, has advanced here, that there's got to be something more than wisdom or pleasure to make life meaningful. 
as it happens when St. Paul was on the Areopagus, he told them what that meaningful thing is. He preached to them the gospel of this unknown God, the one in Athens that they had monuments to, but which they did not know. He said, he's the one I've come to proclaim to you. Well, we don't get that from the preacher yet, but we are going to get some hope from the preacher. To put it back to the definition of Hevel, of of vanity. The best description I have read for vanity is in the commentary that I have used over and over. Um, Kidner, Derek Kidner. Um, he writes that the real definition of vanity in the context of the book of Ecclesiastes, I'll read it because I don't want to misquote him. The futile emptiness of trying to be happy apart from God. Every time we hear the preacher use the term vanity, try to think of it that way. The futile emptiness of trying to be happy apart from God. And perhaps we can then begin to see where the preacher is going to take us in this um, long and meandering seminar on the meaning of life. I'd like to finish with the words of Jesus, some of the words of Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount. Y'all can probably recite them from memory. This is from the seventh, or rather the, I'm sorry, the sixth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And beginning at the 19th verse. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think that the way the preacher would have put that is... What we value the most is what defines us. And so as the preacher leads us through all of these questions about the meaninglessness of life, think about what we value and where the preacher is going to lead us to conclude at the very end of his book. We'll see glimpses of it as we go. Next week, I want to talk about the musical question of time. And what uh, the songwriter Pete Seeger and the 1960s rock group, the, uh, the Birds, might have owed to the book of Ecclesiastes. I'll bet some of you can already guess. But that's it for this week. Any comments, questions, thoughts, disputes, brickbats? Just don't throw a children's book at me. We've, we've got to give the... The place back. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely not. Okay, well, thank you all, and I hope to see you next week and in the weeks to come. We plan to do this all through the uh, month of June, so if you, if you can't be here every week, then we'll try to bring everybody along. Every, every week we'll have something new, but it will draw on what we've done before. Thank you very much. See you next thank week. You.
Bye-bye. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.